Welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and the innovation ecosystem. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First up, we're going to find out about the upcoming EdTech Conference hosted by Kamehameha Schools from organizer Alan Tamayose. And then we'll explore what's being done to control invasive species like the coconut rhinoceros beetle and whether eradications, uh, re- eradication efforts are successful. But first off, we do want to welcome Alan from Kamehameha Schools to tell us about this upcoming annual event. Welcome to the show. Welcome back. All right. Aloha, Bert. Aloha, Ryan. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. You know, your event just keeps coming and coming. And, like, you know, it wasn't like very long ago that I it, thought there was some unconference ed camp going on. But this is ed tech. Right, so it's a kind of a different spin on the the gathering right. of education uh, uh, experts. Yes, a, a little different from the the ed camp, but this um, conference is put on by Kamehameha Schools, mm-hmm. and this is our seventh one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, what is the main focus for? I'm, I've seen the um, the ed tech before. It's a pretty large event, and there's you know the kind of the typical breakout sessions. What is the main function and feature of of the ed tech? What do you want to accomplish uh, at it? Yeah, well, it's open to all educators and anyone who's really passionate about education. And it's a two-day conference. Mm-hmm. It'll be next Tuesday and Wednesday, along with the free unconference next Monday. Our theme is Explore the Impossible, and we have um, a few different strands. We're going to concentrate on culture-based learning, innovation, STEAM, student-centered learning, and virtual learning. Now, I think it's important to reiterate that this is open to all educators. So if you are a public school teacher, a charter school teacher, what if you're a homeschool teacher? I mean, if you are invested in educating young minds and specifically in embracing technology and education, this event is open to them? Right, absolutely. And not only from Hawaii, but we've even had like a visitor from Alaska who spends her beginning of summer in Hawaii and she attends our conference, and this will be our third one. Well, there you mm-hmm. go. So it's uh, at least an interstate event. Maybe we can make it an international, international event. Right. So you mentioned it's Tuesday and Wednesday, but it starts or it's related to an unconference on Monday. Can you tell us a little bit about that event? Okay, so the unconference is it's free and it's open to anyone, and it's a half a day, and it's just people getting together and kind of creating their own agenda for what they want to learn that day. And actually, Bert actually helped us launch our unconference in 2013. So, That's right. Mahalo. Oh, sure. I mean, it's always a fun event. And, you know, the idea is that you can actually come with your own idea for a topic, right, and, and suggest it as a possible session. Mm-hmm. And then if people are interested, they kind of convene, and then you just have your, let's say, 45 minutes to talk about it, right? Right. So the first 15 minutes, people will just jot down their ideas on the grid, and then we'll kind of organize it, and people will just pick and choose which session they want to attend and just meet up with like-minded people. So that's kind of an open platform on Monday, and then Tuesday and Wednesday is this EdTech conference. Tell us a little bit more about some of these tracks. Let's start with uh, culture-based learning. Is that uh, related to what they also call indigenous knowledge? Yeah, and and especially now at Kamehameha Schools, we're really focusing on culture-based learning, and especially our conference being the week before the Hokulea returns. Mm, That's right. And we're having um, Miki Tomita kind of um, present about what she learned as being part of a crew member on the Hokulea, as well as their education specialist. Yeah, we've had uh, Mickey on the show, and she would be a great, I think, uh, speaker and and, and host Mm -hmm. for a session. Now, you mentioned things like STEAM. I'm hearing more and more about STEAM, where the added A to Mm -hmm. STEM is now, I guess, incorporating art. How do you see educators really (laughs) embracing that? Um, Well, yeah, there's, there's such a a focus on STEM right now, nationwide, worldwide. And 
there's a lot of schools that they want to also incorporate the arts, and especially at Kamehameha schools where art is part of our culture. We mm-hmm. really want to have that seamless and, and part of the whole picture. Mm-hmm. Now, if, you know, if they're trying to incorporate art, I mean, have you seen sort of examples of where art and the whole science and engineering and you know, technology have sort of all come together? Yeah, especially um, if you attend some of our sessions on the coding and, and different um, sessions like that, you'll mm-hmm. see all of the graphic art, the design, and mm. um, all of the thought that goes behind that. And we have people who will be doing um, sessions on design thinking, as well as your friend Ian Kitajima. He'll oh, he's going to well. do a design, uh, design thinking Yes, he's, he's one of our featured presenters oh, as well. Oh, very good. Very so good. is there a specific age level or education level that is the meat and potatoes of this conference, or do you see everything from preschool to college education? Yeah, it, it's, it's preschool to college, homes, huh. homeschooling, alternative schools, everything. Now, you mentioned coding. What forms of coding are you actually going to be talking about at, at this sort of level of, of uh, ed tech? Yeah, well, there's um, people who will be doing um, sessions on Scratch, the MIT mm-hmm. Scratch, along with um, makey-makey devices that go makey, along. Makey-makey, yeah. Yeah, so students are able to create projects and actually have different kinds of interfaces with the software with actual actual objects that they can manipulate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there any things that you would like to see result from the conference besides just people getting together and, and learning something new? I mean, are there ways that teachers can sort of stay in touch with each other uh, as a result of, you know, having met? Yeah. So, like, with so much content online right now, really the strength of getting together is developing those relationships and being able to collaborate and maybe plan future projects together. So we, we're really making an effort for teachers to get to know one another through and, and um, to follow up with um, social media such as Twitter to continue their interaction. So we don't want the conference to end on Wednesday, but actually to continue. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great point because one of the things that I found most beneficial about going to any of your events is the fact that there's always something new that somebody has discovered and is sharing with everybody else. So there's some tools and applications that you can take away from you know, that event, as well as contacts across the entire spectrum of, of educators. Right. And we, we try to look at different kind of formats and just different types of activities to keep everything fresh. So we'll have hands-on. We'll have two-hour sessions as well as one-hour sessions. Um, we have... Josh Repun, who actually ah. works with oh, most okay. likely to most succeed, likely to succeed yep. the Hawaii chapter. He's working on his own documentary, and mm-hmm, he'll be mm-hmm. sharing what uh, kinds of information and knowledge that he's gained. And this will be the first year that we're going to have a KS student actually be a presenter and not just an assistant to a teacher. Tell us more about but, that. Great. So we have a junior. He's a whiz kid. He's an outstanding student named Nick Wong, and he'll be. Oh pre- yes. Oh, I you know he, him. There was. I do know him, oh, and there okay. was news coverage of him recently right. as well. Like uh, when he first started experimenting with technology on the campus, he actually triggered the campus's IT security warnings because he was doing, I guess, a good job of collecting information. So the school, Kamehameha Schools, embraced him yeah. and the work that he was doing. So he's going to be speaking at this event. Right. Now, and, <clears throat> you had the unconference on Monday. You have the uh, ed tech event on the Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, is there a charge for any of these? What's the... Yeah, the unconference is free. Mm-hmm. The two-day conference is 175 mm-hmm. It includes breakfast and lunch for both days. Food is good. The good. food is great. 
And um, the presenters that we have, some of the keynotes that we've brought in, we have two um, keynotes who are actually TED speakers. One is mm. Louis Pugh, who um, he's known for actually doing the impossible, which is our theme. He actually swam in the Antarctic as well as a lake near Mount Everest. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he does these incredible feats, but he also tries to bring awareness to um, different issues about our climate change and things like that. Our other keynote is Jia Jiang, and he actually is going to speak about um, how to deal with rejection and how to turn that around to make it a positive form of learning and growing and just moving beyond your fears. This sounds like a great, rich two-day program and $175 sounds more than reasonable. If somebody wanted to participate, where can they find more information on the Unconference and or the EdTech Conference? Okay, the best place to go is on Twitter at KSEdTech. Oh, you really? Okay. We have our pinned tweet as well as our entire feed has all the information that you'll need about the conference, including our um, conference openers, Honoka and Azita. There'll be um, two ukulele vir- virtuosos, and they'll be opening the conference for us. So again, you go to Twitter, at KS EdTech. Fantastic. Very good. We'll put that up on our show notes. Thanks, Alan, for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for your support good all these back. years. Mahalo. And of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be talking about invasive species with Keith Weiser. Don't go away. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Akahi Ornish Lifestyle Medicine, Hawaii Pacific University, and Ulupono Initiative. I begin my day with public radio, so I'm always listening to Morning Edition, and I begin my weekends with Weekend Edition. I find it a very comfortable way to start my day. I get to learn about what's going on in the world, and each day I'm learning something new. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. Joining us now is Keith Weiser. He is a research liaison for the coconut rhinoceros beetle response under the Hawaii Department of Agriculture. And of course, how are we doing with this? Uh, with of course these invasive species that are actually settling here in Hawaii. And of course, what can citizens do to help the situations? Hey, so Keith, welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's a great opportunity. Good to have you. Now you know the uh, well. First off, let's ask about your background. How did you get involved with this fight against the rhinoceros beetle? What is your background? Well, yeah, it's, it's a little bit funny. I, okay. I, so I have a, a PhD in cell and molecular biology, and I did a postdoc here in Hawaii, which was more uh, stem cell-based, and which is nothing to do with beetles. But <laughs> so what, more med- medicine, I guess, is a background. Yeah, biomedical. Biomedical research and uh, genomics is sort of my background. So uh, when I finished my postdoc, I uh, was teaching some classes. I I signed up to teach some classes and I kind of needed something to fill in the extra time because I didn't have a a full schedule of classes. And a friend of mine said, hey, you like bugs. There's this this thing for um, controlling some invasive species they need some people for. So I went and talked to them and um, they they needed somebody with my skills. So 
I joined the project, and I've always really liked insects. I, I thought I wanted to be an entomology major when I oh. uh, went to college and uh, ended up going the molecular route, but I still have a real love for insects, which um, actually does translate to eradicating insects. You, okay. can, you can love them and want them not to be <laughs> here, is, is basically what I'm saying. I was about to ask, how did a friend just basically <laughs> volunteer you? Oh, you like bugs. This sounds <laughs> perfect. So uh, tell us about the program. This is... Um, under the Hawaii Department of Agriculture, which makes sense, but how does it all, I mean, how is it funded? And, you know, then you can get into what the objective of the program is. Yeah, so so we get funding from a few different sources. We have uh, a lot of help on the military side. A lot of the problem is on military land, and the military has been mm. really good with um, putting a lot of funds forward to, to help us uh, control the beetle on their lands. And then we get money from uh, places like the Farm Bill and... Um, so uh, a lot of it's coming from federal sources. So so that's kind of nice for Hawaii, bringing in some, some money for this control. You know, <clears throat> we're going to kind of focus in on the uh, coconut rhinoceros beetle, but what would you say are, say, the top five uh, invasive bug species that are impacting our environment? Uh, well, I, I, one of the scariest for me is uh, Rapidohia death. It's not an insect, so mm-hmm. it's it's not on my beloved list, but it is <laughs> it is on the very scary list Absolutely. for me. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, that that one is relatively new. Um, it uh, we don't have a great way of uh, sort of containing that. So it's it's uh, it's something that I'm really scared is going to mm-hmm. spread uh, pretty far. Um, it's it's not something where you can treat it with some pesticides like you can with uh, a lot of insect species. So uh, I think there are there are a lot of challenges with rapid ohia death so so that's one of the um one of the scarier ones for me um, um would uh, the co- uh, coconut rhinoceros beetle go up against say the coffee borer beetle on the big island coffee uh, coffee uh, berry borer berry borer um <laughs> yeah so um th- th- there's some there's some definite differences there um we've got a very large and conspicuous beetle and that's a that's a pretty small beetle mm. that's attacking a cash crop and this is attacking more of a culturally important species so um uh, that would be coconut trees, right? Coconut ah, trees, okay. yes, yeah. I guess I guess we should have covered that. That would make that, it yeah. the coconut uh, <laughs> rhinoceros beetle. So you said it's big. Tell us a little bit more about this bug that you love, but also want to get rid of. Yeah. So th- this is a beetle. It's got a pretty long life cycle. Um, it begins its life as an egg in uh, decaying green waste in mulch, basically. Uh, grows into a grub. And um, the, the eggs are about the size of a Tic Tac, and those grubs start about that size. And then they grow to several inches long, maybe three inches long. And uh, they're eating mulch there. We're not so worried about that. But then when they pupate and they turn into a mature beetle, they're a large black beetle with a rhinoceros-looking horn coming from the head, about um, uh, two inches long, and they can fly around. So they fly into coconut trees, mm. and they need to feed. So they burrow into the soft green tissues in the top, and that's where they're causing a lot of the damage that's causing um, the trees to look bad. So we see these distinctive damage we call V-cuts within the fronds mm. and boreholes that are um, holes up in the fronds. And this can, not only does it make the trees ugly, it makes them less healthy. They, they produce um, less good fruit and um, eventually they can die. So this can be a vector for disease. Disease can get in uh, the, the, that damage. So... We don't see terribly extensive damage here on Oahu because we don't have huge populations. Some places like Guam have very heavy populations, and so their trees are... um, Very unhealthy. Yeah, very unhealthy and dying all over. And when a tree dies, then it becomes a place where they can breed. So um, that rotting coconut tree is bad. So so we, we're pretty lucky we're not nearly as affected as uh, places that have a big problem. So that's why 
we think we can still eradicate this. It's 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 still early days. Yeah, I see. So the uh, <clears throat> the first detection of the coconut rhinoceros beetle was back in about 2014. Is that correct? And it was what primarily on the Joint Base Pearl Harbor. Yeah, the first place we found it was on the golf course at Joint Base. Mo'o so what was what, was this something that the people were like golfing and they thought, "Wow, what's this big <laughs> black looking like a golf ball on the on yeah, the fairway?" So, so sometimes we have traps up up around to just for surveying and so one of these survey traps happened to catch a coconut rhinoceros beetle ah, uh-huh. uh, you know one of the people who's actually on our team today was was the first one to to um, to find this and uh, the so um, I, I said it was early days so this beetle has a really long life cycle so that's why it's early when you days. say long life cycle how long is it yeah so uh, it spends several months as a larva and then it can take um, it can live for um, maybe about a year or so. Mm-hmm. So, so when you think of a generation time being maybe four or six months, um, you you can go years, and it's still only been a few generations. Whereas um, some other species that we're talking about, um, like ants, like, like the fire ants, yeah, fi- fire ants and um, coffee berry borer, they've got shorter lifespans, and so uh, things happen on a much slower time scale Ooh. when you've got a long life cycle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you, uh, you you see this big black beetle on the golf course, and then that's sort of like the the, the first, uh, <clears throat> I guess, identification of this coffee. I mean, the, the uh, coconut rhinoceros. Has it been? Uh, has it spread from? Joint base, and and is it primarily just through flight that it's you know it's flying around and now finds another coconut tree to land on? So when you first find one of these uh, one of these bugs, the first thing you do is start looking. Okay, where else is it? Because mm-hmm. when you first find it, it's probably been there for a while, and we don't know how long it has been here before we found it. So what we did is we put a bunch of traps up, and people have probably seen the traps all over the island. There are these. Tall black uh, corrugated plastic traps with a white bucket at the bottom, okay. and they hang in trees, and they look kind of like a lantern. Maybe some people right, think they're right, a bird right. feeder. Um, so, so that's what we put up, and then eventually you'll get some beetles flying into those traps, and then you know, aha, this is an area we need to look. So then we started looking at other areas, and we found we found them um, a few other places on base, mostly right around Pearl Harbor, and so we don't know how long it took them to spread to there. Eventually, we started finding detections in other areas, and and so they can fly to other areas. One of the other ways is people, and this is one that we particularly worry about. If you are working near an infestation, maybe you're working on base, and then one of them gets into your truck, or maybe you move some mulch, you move a potted plant, and you go over the mountains, or Mm -hmm, you go to mm -hmm. another um, neighborhood, and then they come out and they start laying eggs there, and then they've spread uh, these beetles are probably pretty lazy. They're probably not going to fly <laughs> five miles to a coconut tree when there's a coconut tree right next to them or mm-hmm. there's a pile of mulch right next to them. So we've, we ha- we've seen the spread doesn't happen very quickly out from uh, joint base. But we have had a few pockets where we've seen some beetles out in Nanakuli. We didn't have any hits between Nanakuli and joint base or very few hits. And suddenly <laughs> they showed up in Nanakuli. That's almost definitely somebody took some material, probably mulch, and brought it out to Nanakuli from somewhere near Joint Base, and that's how they got there. How many eggs do these uh, beetles actually typically produce? Yeah, at least 50, 50 um, probably probably more than 100 is, is pretty typical for a female over the course of their life. So in a, in a typical lifespan, I mean, they could be pumping out hundreds of, of keiki. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so we've sort of done projections, and we would imagine that these beetles should be Way more abundant than they are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, 
we're kind of lucky here in that they, they haven't exploded in the ways that we've sort of projected. And there could be a few reasons for that. There could be diseases we haven't yet found. Uh, we have predators. So we found that mongoose actually eat these. Finally, the mongoose are good for something. Huh. <laughs> um, and so something is kind of keeping these guys at bay. Uh, partially, it's our efforts because we have thousands of traps out there. And in these traps, we've caught thousands of beetles mm. so far. So we are helping to keep them at bay. Um, so we'll, uh, you know, we want to hear a little bit more about some of the, I guess, the success in the eradication process. So we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Keith Weiser about the coconut rhinoceros beetle. And, of course, this is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And if you're just joining us, we're talking to Keith Weiser about the coconut rhinoceros beetle and efforts to eradicate them. And, of course, now right before the break, we were talking about some of the uh, you know, eradication uh, procedures. Uh, one of the uh, questions that we got was, uh, how, what kind of bait do you use for the coconut rhinoceros beetle? And, you know, tell us a little bit about that, you know, well, tell us first about the bait. What's the bait? Yeah, so uh, we use a couple of things to attract them to these traps. Uh, we use a pheromone. So uh, there's been long known to be a pheromone that attracts them. We call it an aggregation pheromone. Mm-hmm. So it's just a chemical that we know that they, um, they smell it or they sense it with their antenna and they go towards it. So we, put, we hang that in the middle of the trap. Mm-hmm. So they fly around at night. And if they run into this trap, they pull in their wings to protect them and they fall into the cup at the bottom. The other thing we have is we have a light. So you know how moths and other things come to lights at night. We put a light in these traps, uh, like a near UV wavelength LED, and um, that charges via solar during the day and then it turns on at night. And that helps, uh, we think that helps to attract them as well. So is the trap the only eradication method that you're using? No. So one of our other major methods, when we find a a trap hit, when we find a detection in an area, then uh, we put up more traps because they're effective and we want to sort of zero in exactly where it is. And then we look for where the breeding site is. Because Mm -hmm. I said these beetles are lazy, they probably don't want to go too far from where they were born to feed or to run into a trap, as, as is the case. So we try and look for mulch in that area or green waste that they're reproducing mm. in. And so we'll go through physically by hand and dig through the mulch and sift looking for grubs. And if we find those right, then we um, get rid of all that mulch and get rid of all those grubs. Now, you mentioned that uh, your tra- traps are catching them by the multitude, and that's one of the ways you are finding a success. How successful are these eradication efforts? Have, are you driving them out of Nanakuli? How are things at Pearl Harbor? Yeah, so we mentioned Mamala Bay was the initial site of infestation. And and uh, we, th- through mulching events and uh, removing from the mulch, we got thousands there. And thousands? Uh, yeah, over a thousand. Wow. Pro- probably, probably just over a thousand there. We actually had some poor record keeping in the very beginning, but, <laughs> um, but uh, it, probably over a thousand in that location. And then we would have regular trap catches in that area. We would have um, 10, 10 or 20 per week um, uh, in that area for a, for a long period of time. And once we got rid of all the mulch and we implemented a green waste sanitation on base and put up those traps, now we get like one to five hits per week. So it's gone way down, but we still have this low baseline level. Mm-hmm. So um, so 
Researchers at UH are looking at new ways to be able to sort of push that low number to zero. And in some areas, we've had some even more success. So uh, out in Nanakuli, I mentioned uh, some green waste probably got taken out there at some point, And there was a population over in Nanakuli that was separate from the joint base population. So um, through our trapping efforts and uh, probably the action of some mongooses and, and maybe some diseases that we don't know about, that population uh, is is very low now, and we haven't had a detection for a while. Fingers crossed. Mm. Hopefully, that's how gone. did you first find out that it was in Nanakuli? Did did a citizen report that, or how did how did that uh, be? You know, come to your awareness. So we have traps up not only on base and where we think beetles are, but we have traps all over the island where they think we think they might go or hope they don't go. Mm -hmm. We've got them on the North Shore. Um, We have them in much higher densities where we have known populations, but we have them pretty much all over the island where we think the beetles could go. And we target obviously places where there's mulch piles and where um, the climate seems suitable for them. So that's where you first got the indication that they were in Nanakuli. Did you Mm -hmm. see? Have you have you seen any in uh, traps over in like Alamoana Beach Park? I've seen the traps there. Yeah, we we um we have traps over there, and every once in a while we get uh, a single detection in an area, and it doesn't turn out to be a breeding population. In in other words, we get one detection, and then we go for months or years without another detection. We've had them out at um, Diamond Head and Fort Derussi, mm. and those were all just a single beetle, and then we never saw anything again. Mm-hmm. So, Keith, I mean, you made a good point that, you know, it's not like a cash crop like Kona Coffee with the coffee berry borer beetle. Um, but, and this is primarily affecting coconut trees, and I guess we don't want ugly coconut trees. Is there a danger at all? I mean, if you've got a coconut, uh, if you've got a coconut rhinoceros beetle in a coconut tree and it's an unhealthy tree, does that cause things to drop unexpectedly? I mean, we see statistics that you're more likely to be killed by a coconut, for example, than a shark. Well, uh, w- when people come from Guam, where, they, where this is a big problem, and uh, they come to here, they say, oh, you got to stop this beetle. Our, our trees, they, they don't produce good coconuts. They're all ugly. They're all dying. Hmm. And um, so... Here, it's not a big cash crop, like you said, but um, it's culturally important to us. It's an sure. important part of the aesthetic. People come here and they expect to see beautiful palm trees. Mm-hmm. And um, so if, if this gets to be a big problem, then you know we may have to get rid of coconut trees or just have ugly e- coconut is trees. Is there something that an average citizen can do to help this effort? Yeah, um, we... We like people to report any kinds of damage they have. Also, our traps are up all over, and sometimes wind blows them down. If you see a trap down, the phone number to call is right on the trap. You can you can call that number and uh, and let us know the trap is down. Um, uh, green waste sanitation is important if you're in one of the danger areas. So if you've got your own mulch pile, um, either keep it contained, so keep it in some kind of sealed container that the beetles can't get into, or do hot composting. So uh, adding the proper ratios of nitrogen um, uh, and carbon to be able to get those temperatures up to above, you know, 120 or 130 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's going to be hot enough to prevent them from, um, from reproducing in there. And then once you deplete those nutrients, it's it's a it's not a very good place for them to breed. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so um, doing very active composting or keeping your compost uh, well controlled, and then uh, green waste sanitation. If you're using your green bins for your yard waste instead of leaving it in a pile, that's going to help us out, especially right, right. if you live um, close to Joint Base somewhere or Pearl City area. Ah, uh, Pearl City. That would I that's know. That's my backyard. Mm-hmm. So uh, are there are there citizens that are able to you know, like report via a website or anything? Uh, yeah, so um, 
You can uh, you can look up our information uh, Hawaii.gov HDOA. Probably just doing a Google search for um, coconut rhinoceros. Yeah, coconut rhinoceros beetle or CRB uh-huh. um, and HDOA will will give you all our information. And if you see any of our traps, our our phone numbers right on the traps there. And, and we'll put the link to the site on our show notes at bitemarkscafe.org. But um, it sounds like we are making progress and could win this war. Uh, yeah, I think so. Fantastic. Very good. And it's not on the neighbor islands, right? It's just on Oahu. Just on Oahu right now. And we'd really like to keep it off of Oahu and also keep it off of the mainland. The mainland is really uh, huh. interested in us controlling the problem because yes. California, Florida, they've got um, bigger palm industries than we have. So Very, very good. Well, of course, Keith Weiser, he's with the Department of Agriculture fighting the coconut rhinoceros beetle. We want to thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a fun time. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. You can join us next week when we talk about the upcoming summer cyber camps. And if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. We strongly encourage you to check out the HPR app. You can check it out in your app store. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And, of course, we'll see you back here next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Yes, you will come.